Welcome to the Independent Advisors Podcast, where we dive into the world of stocks, tradable markets, and financial planning with Jessup Wealth Management's Chief Investment Officer, Mark McEvely, and CEO, Matt Jessup. You'll hear tips, tricks, and strategies to address your financial well-being, and most importantly, conveyed in a way that everyone can understand. Here are your hosts, Mark and Matt. Hey everyone, welcome to episode number 167 of the Independent Advisors Podcast, where Matt Jessup and I, Mark McEvely, bring you into our world of financial markets and financial planning. So good morning, Matt. Morning, Mark. How are you? Pretty good. Pretty good. Um, got some uh, interesting inflation data just this morning that we'll share with listeners here, but uh, more good news going forward to aid this little rally we've seen over the past week in stocks. Love that. Let's keep just working on that flame, Let's baby. Keep it going. fuel. Adding fuel. <laughs> Uh, but before we get to that, as always, we will uh, go over the performance of the major indexes that we track. Uh, and these numbers are as of the market close on September 12th. And this data is from YCharts. S&P 500 index up 3.9% for the month and down 13.8% for the year. The Dow Jones up 2.8% for the month, down 11% for the year. The NASDAQ Composite Index up 3.8% for the month and down 21.6% for the year. The IWM ETF that tracks the Russell 2000 Small Cap Index up 3.4% for the month and down 14.7% for the year. And the Vanguard All World X United States ETF up 2.1% for the month and down 17.7% for the year. Three-month treasury rate at 3.17%, the two-year treasury rate at 3.58%, and the 10-year treasury rate at 3.37%. Uh, like we kind of mentioned, Matt, the NASDAQ posted three straight days of gains last week on Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday. Uh, that continued into Monday as all the indices were up approximately 1% yesterday. Mm -hmm. uh, the last time the NASDAQ posted three straight days of gains was clo to close out the month of July. And the catalyst for the rally appeared to be weaker than expected inflation data out of China and some weakness in the U.S. dollar. Um, and then just this morning, uh, CPI for August came out this month and it eased to 8.3% in August, which is down from 9.1% in June and 8.5% in July with gasoline and airfare uh, being the major drivers of that decrease. So since June, we've gotten a few months of deceleration in inflation, not to say that we're not experiencing inflation anymore, but sure. it's decelerating. So that is uh, on the right path. Very welcomed, I think, for I, most people. Two little tidbits of data at the very end of my notes that point to further components of CPI continuing to come in. Okay. Uh, moving on to tweets, articles, and research from the week. First thing I had was a blog post from Ben Carlson titled, It's Okay to Be Bearish, But It's Not Okay to Stay Bearish. So Ben says, it's easy to be negative right now, but it's always easy to be negative during a bear market. The stock market wouldn't be down if there wasn't bad news. Instead of going back and forth between being bullish or bearish, I prefer to remain calmish. We already know stocks are going to be volatile. Why should you care about market fluctuations if you know they're not going to last forever? This bear market could last longer, stocks could go down more, or we could see new highs in the matter of months. I honestly don't know. But successful long-term investing comes from letting go of the desire to pretend like you know what's going to happen all the time. 
Surviving bear markets requires you to manage both volatility and your emotions. That means while it's okay to feel bearish at times, it's not okay to stay bearish. Bear markets don't last forever. So I thought it was just a pretty simple explanation that, you know, when when times are rough and the going the going is bad, you know, you automatically are conditioned to think that it's going to stay bad for a long period of time. And just looking back at history, we know that that's not true. And I think that we're in one of those periods where, you know, people are so negative and the data is so negative that they're seeing that they think that this is going to last for a long period of time. But I just caution people, uh, as Ben says, to stay bearish for too long. Absolutely. And to add to that, Mark, remember, when it's going to feel good to invest, easy money's going to be made. Mm -hmm. So the thing I saw this morning, and I'm going to reference it, is uh, Bank of America had a survey showing, quote, investors fleeing equities in mass. And it says a historically high 52% of respondents said they are underweight equities, while 62% are overweight cash. The contrarian in me wants to do the opposite of what the crowd is doing right now. My two cents, mm-hmm. but it just feels that way to me. Yeah, it does. It definitely does. And I think, you know, you, you see this time and time again, and it's the cycle that we go through, uh, you know, when we have bull markets and bear markets and corrections is that typically when people are getting more conservative it's like yeah might want to look at taking the other side of that yeah not saying you have to look at it like a bet but yeah you know you don't we just see this at market tops and market bottoms when people are overly optimistic or overly pessimistic and i think we're getting near one of those times if we're not already there yeah last point i'll make is going back to last week's podcast when i made the point about underlying corporate profitability if we saw a dramatic erosion in underlying profitability that would justify these lower stock prices, I would have a different tone and a different message. Mm-hmm. But so far, that's not the case. Yeah, yeah. And I'm actually going to read a piece on that here in a second. The second thing I had Great was... think alike. That's true. Um, was a blog post from Sam Rowe titled, You Can Make Any Piece of Data Look Bad If You Try. <laughs> uh, and again, if I know that we lean optimistically here the majority of the time, and there's a reason for that. But I also want to point out some things that don't look so great right now. But if you dig into it more, um, it's not as bad as people think. Okay. So first thing was about company layoffs. He said that for months, layoffs have been affecting an array of companies, including well-known names like J.P. Morgan, Netflix, Tesla, Coinbase, Robinhood, and Peloton. And the numbers are not small. According to the Bureau of Labor Statistics, 1.3 million workers were laid off in June alone. But this is not yet a sign of a labor market downturn. Those 1.3 million layoffs represent approximately 0.9% of the 152 million employed during the period. Believe it or not, this is an unusually low layoff rate. In fact, the layoff rate has been below pre-pandemic lows for 16 straight months. 16 straight months. The labor market is remaining pretty resilient. So, you know, it seems like the the news outlets, they kind of get attached to a couple of, say, more uh, notable companies that are doing these layoffs. And it almost sends the message, well, if they're doing it, everyone else There's a wave coming, right? And which could be the case. We don't know. But as of right now, we're just not seeing it. 
Uh, second thing is consumers are tapping into savings. The personal saving rate is coming down and consumers are drawing from the more than $2 trillion in estimated savings they have accumulated since the start of the pandemic. But the point of having a rainy day fund is so you have something for rainy days. And these are rainy days. One of the most bullish aspects of excess savings is consumers having a much bigger financial cushion to fall back on should economic conditions turn against them. With inflation eating away at purchasing power, thank goodness consumers have savings to tap. This is a much better situation than one where consumers have to forego spending on critical goods. Number three, supply chains are tight. There's evidence that parts of the global supply chain continue to remain tight, but there's no question uh, that there's room for improvement. But supply chains have improved dramatically since their most trouble periods last year. Delivery times have gotten shorter, ocean freight rates have come down sharply, trucking capacity is up, and inventory levels are gradually returning to normal. Number four, debt levels are up and delinquencies are rising. So this is the headline that everybody sees, right? Got it. Mortgage debt, credit card debt, and auto loan debt are all up and delinquencies are rising. That's a true fact. But any serious conversation about debt should also address the capacity to finance that debt. Income. Asset values, cash levels, GDP, all sorts of metrics associated with the capacity to finance debt are way up relative to history. As a result, debt payments as a percentage of income are low relative to historical levels. And I'll have Jenna throw this chart up on on the YouTube page for us. It'll also, also be in our show notes. But again, goes back to which we've mentioned several times on this before is when you're talking about debt, you have to have it uh, relative to household income. Absolutely. Two weeks ago, we had a piece from Argus Research talked about exactly the metrics of that pre-COVID, where it's at now, and it was not screaming any sort of an alert concern from the American consumer. Correct. Uh, Moving on to earnings expectations that we were just talking about, analysts have been lowering their estimates for S&P 500 earnings in 2022 and 2023. Without question, this is a big deal. Earnings are the most important long-term driver of stock prices, which we touched on last week. But analysts are still projecting high single-digit earnings growth for this year and next. Say that word again. High High single-digit earnings growth growth? for this year and next year. Okay. And with stock prices already down sharply this year, the bad news of lowered earnings estimates appears to be priced in. Anything you want to add to that? That's what we talked about last week. It's like there's this there's this difference in this world right now between perception and reality. And the perception based upon these stock prices is that you not only had growth rates come in, but go negative year over year. Mm-hmm. And in a lot of stocks, that's not the case. And at the end of the day, I think that's a big reason why you're seeing a bid in this market since the end of June, on top of the fact that people are starting to see light at the end of the tunnel in regards to what the Federal Reserve is doing. And the last point I want to make is talking about layoffs. There was some clickbait yesterday from Goldman Sachs that they're going to do some layoffs. You click on the article, and I already knew where it was going. Every year, Every year, they lay off 3% of their staff who's underperforming to replace it. Right. But the headline said Goldman Sachs was conducting layoffs. Yeah. It's but it didn't brutal. go in until you read down that they do it every single year. Mm-hmm. Clickbait. Clickbait. Don't pay attention to it. 
Uh, mortgage rates are the highest that they've been in years. Mortgage rates have riv risen to levels last seen during the global financial crisis. This is a problem for prospective home buyers who are already facing record high home prices and may now have to wait for months, if not years, to buy. But rising mortgage rates are exactly what the Fed wants as it aims to cool the economy in its effort to bring down inflation. Also, this is not a sign we're about to enter another financial crisis. According to Goldman Sachs, Here we go. only 3% of mortgaged properties have negative equity. That number was substantially higher. 3%. In 07 and 08. 3%. And 99% of outstanding mortgages have locked in a rate that's lower than the current market rate. So is, I just think that maybe there is an issue with the housing market that me and you don't know and don't foresee over the next couple of years, and we could be wrong on that, but it's not the same issue that was present in 07 and 08. That's the point. Could you see a slowdown? Could you even see prices cool a little bit? That could be debated. To mm -hmm. me... When you start relating that it's going to be another 07, 08, and 09, there is not fundamental issues with the monetary system right now. Mm -mm. There's not. Money is flowing. You go back to 07 and 08, money was not moving. No. No one trusted a counterparty, overnight risk, all that stuff was a major issue. This is apples to oranges. Right. Totally agree. Energy costs are up. So while energy costs may have ticked lower over the past month, they're still way up from a year ago. But everything that requires energy continues to become more efficient, meaning energy cost spikes today don't have the same kind of impact they did years ago. Do you know what the average car currently gets uh, miles per gallon? What's your mm. guess? I'm going to guess. I'm going to guess 27. Okay. You're close, 25 today. Okay. And do you know what the average mile per gallon in 1975 was? Oh, uh, 16. 13. So more broadly, spending on energy as a share of total personal spending has been trending lower for decades. And I'll have Jenna put this chart up as well, which is really interesting because, again, the headlines have been energy costs are getting out of control. But if you look at it, relative again to uh, a, per a percentage of consumer spending it has continued to go down since its peak in 1980. Very interesting statistic there. Very interesting. So he wraps up by saying when you zoom out a bit you'll see that a lot of things have been improving in the long run whether it's financial health energy efficiency lending discipline or general economic conditions most have gotten better over time. For investors, all this helps to explain why earnings have trended higher over time. And since earnings are the most important driver of stock prices, it also helps to explain why the stock market usually goes up. So I um, thought that was a really good post, just pointing out things and digging just not a whole lot deeper, but just a little deeper than the headline. You see that things really aren't as bad as, as people make them out to be. Yeah, in my opinion, you know, as as that becomes more and more apparent, you know, you're going to have Q3 earnings season begin the middle of October and last through roughly the first, second week of November. My perception is those earnings aren't going to be bad. I'm not saying they're going to be fantastic. They're not going to be bad. And uh, that could be yet another potential upside catalyst for the market. Yep. Um, I'll turn it over to you, Matt. All right, I got several this week. The first is a little nod to uh, Queen Elizabeth. 
Mm-hmm. Okay. I'm going to give a little history lesson here. Okay. You ready? Professor Matt is in the room. <laughs> the queen had 15 different prime ministers serve under her. That's a lot. Another statistic I found interesting was that during her reign, there were also 13 separate bear markets in the U.S. As a reminder for our newer listeners, Mark, the bear market is defined as a 20% plus decline from the high on a closing basis with no rallies of 20% plus in between, okay? And this data is according to Bespoke, including one where the S&P declined over 50% and another where it dropped 48%. Besides those... There were five other bear markets where the S&P 500 lost more than one-third of its value, Mark. Hmm. In economic terms, there have been 11 confirmed recessions in the United States since the Queen was coronated in 1953, and we could be on the verge of a 12th now. I think it happened, but they're... Okay. During each of these economic (laughs) and market downturns, it probably felt like the end of the world, and you couldn't have faulted someone for panicking at the moment. But with the benefit of hindsight, each of those periods end up being nothing more than a bump in the road, some more than others. During the Queen's reign, the S&P 500 rallied more than 16,000%, or more than 7.6% annualized, before even taking dividends into account. With dividends, the annualized rate of return is over 10% since she reigned. And all this data is from Bespoke. U.S. real GDP per capita over that same period increased by three and a half times, rising from $17,093 per capita to $59,288 today. With the benefit of all that experience, if you had told the queen that the economy was contracting or that stocks were on the verge of a bear market, (laughs) rather than pull your hair out and freak out, instead, in her normally calm demeanor, she would have likely responded with something along the lines of, been there, done that. Next, Jenna's going to put up a chart for our YouTube viewers. This will also be in our show notes for our traditional podcast listeners. And it's a chart mark of the S&P 500 bear market since 1940, even though her reign was from 53, um, uh, being queen, 53, obviously, to this year. It's just neat to kind of see these different kind of bear markets and these drawdowns and you can think of these different periods and these excuses not to invest. Mm-hmm. I just like this because it's another excuse to bring perspective. Yeah, and this one is, this bear market is uh, one of the lighter ones during her reign. Like you said earlier, it's 34%, 48%, 51%, 36%, 33%, 28%. Right now, it, as it stands today, it, uh, it was only down 23.6%. At so, the worst point, yeah, yeah for the S&P. Yeah, yeah interesting. Anything else you'd like to add? No. All right. Next post I have is from Ben Carlson and his blog titled A Wealth of Common Sense on September 7th. He had a blog post that was titled Animal Spirits, uh, the Super Bubble. Which is they have a podcast. Uh, ben Carlson and Michael Batnick have a podcast titled Animal Spirits. It's really good. I, it's one of my favorites I listen to on a weekly basis. Awesome. So, yeah. so they had two charts, a part of it that caught my eye. Okay. One was S&P 500 corrections since 2009, okay? And since 2009, why don't you take a second and remind listeners the difference between a bear market and a correction mark? So like you said earlier, and again, not that I agree or disagree with this or whoever came up with this, it was just an arbitrary number. A bear market is a 20% 
drawdown from peak to trough at any given point in time based on closing highs. A correction, quote unquote, is a 10% pullback from any closing high. Thank you, sir. So, so this chart goes back since 09. And it's going to show corrections, which as Mark just informed you is a greater than a 10% move down from the uh, recent high happened in 2010, 2011, 15 blood over to 16, 2018, 2018, 2020, 2022. Why am I highlighting this? When you put things kind of into perspective, we have been trained since the great financial crisis that when we have a sell off, it's quick mm -hmm. and the market bounces back quick. What do you see different about this chart? It's taking a little longer. Taking a little longer. Yeah, more kind of like 2011. Yeah, a little bit longer. But you know what? It's not abnormal. Mm -mm. And the reason I wanted to highlight this for our viewers and listeners is it's not uncommon for the market to take time to repair and rebound. And as long as I see the underlying fundamentals are there and I'm seeing corporate profitability is hanging in there, gives me some confidence that, you know, we're, we're in an okay spot. Yeah. And so, you know, when you see this, just remember, we've been trained for these quick, sharp sell-offs and these quick, sharp returns. Sometimes they take a little bit longer mm -hmm. and that's not abnormal. No. Though we've been trained in the past decade, feels like it's not. Correct. Second chart I wanna show is consumer confidence in the stock market. This is a chart from JP Morgan Asset Management that goes back to the early 70s. And what this chart will show is consumer sentiment and at either peaks or troughs, it shows what the forward 12 month return was for the S&P 500 index. So Jenna's gonna put this chart up now for our YouTube viewers. And again, for our traditional podcast listeners, I would highly recommend that you pull up our show notes to view this. Mark, will you remind them how to access that, please? Yeah, at Jessup Wealth on Twitter or Jessup Wealth Management on Facebook or LinkedIn. So what I love about this chart is when consumer sentiment is so low, the forward-looking rates of return for the S&P 500 index on average in these eight bottoms was 24.9%. When consumer sentiment was at a peak in those eight instances, the average one-year forward-looking return for the S&P is 4.1%. So what do you pick up here? Consumer sentiment is not exactly looking great, mm -mm. all right? So if you look at history as a roadmap, it would tell you that generally speaking, forward-looking returns have a high probability of being favorable. Mm -hmm. And that's just what I want to throw out here from this chart. Yeah, and I think that, you know, for the long-term investor, if you've been waiting for a fat pitch, this might be it. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> this it's, might be it. it's coming right across the plate, and you just got to just gear up and go. Yeah. So my last piece I want to share is, uh, I promised you at the beginning of the podcast, another tidbit on inflation. And I got two data points. First is a Twitter post by Sarah Eisen. She's a CNBC reporter on September 1st, as I said. And her uh, Twitter post uh, says, more disinflation, restaurant commodity cost coming down, especially jumbo chicken wings. <laughs> Just in time for football season. <laughs> Just in time for, for football season. So Jenna will share this chart, uh, the underlying data uh, on the chart that uh, Jenna's showing on YouTube. It'll be in our show notes. 
is the Morgan Stanley Restaurant Commodity Index. It's showing that for 2022, year to date is tracking up approximately 17% year over year, and that's following a 30% year over year increase in 2021. Yet another piece of these growth rates, Mark, slowing, mm -hmm. coming in. Okay. Are you a chicken wing guy? I can be. My problem is after I started really growing this beard, <laughs> I feel like I have messy. to like take a shower afterwards. Yeah. It's not exactly as easy as it used to be. Yeah, I, I could have them on occasion. I'm not a huge chicken wing guy, though, which is a stark difference from my twin brother who loves chicken wings. Matt just loves them, huh? Loves the chicken wings. How so. about Ryan? Uh, yeah, he's a chicken wing guy, too. Bone or boneless? Bone. I'm Big a bone, bone guy. people. Yeah. 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 But we digress. But we digress. So the second chart is a tweet by Macro Markets Daily on September 1st. And it shows the U.S. ISM manufacturing prices paid in CPI. Why is this noteworthy? You're seeing a really divergence in this chart. And Jenna will show it on YouTube and it'll be in our show notes, where in manufacturing sector, prices paid are really starting to uh, come in. And I think that CPI data, as it comes out, will mm -hmm. follow. My yep. two cents. Yep. So again, I have consistently, every time they've been on the podcast for the past couple of months, I've been giving tidbits of inflation data showing growth rates come in. You talked about CPI data uh, just at the top of the podcast. As long as this data continues to come in, that's not bearish. No. Okay. Might be time for you to break out that shirt coming up here. I might have to break it out. <laughs> yeah, I think it's it, it's good, and I don't I don't mean to to sound like a, a broken record every week, but we keep getting more data that the worst of inflation seems to be at least for right now behind us, unless we get another jolt, <laughs> which we're not expecting, which is very possible. Good so we always have to be open to that, but I think the probability of that is significantly lower today than it was. Eight months ago very well said so before we have uh taylor on for the financial planning topic of the week mark anything that you'd like to leave with sir no i don't think so um september's usually the weakest month of the year for stocks and we're up like i think i said 3.9 percent this month on the s p so just not be aware year. that it not a normal yeah, year. it's not a normal year um be just be open to anything i mean we could we could trend lower throughout the end of the month, um, getting closer and closer to the midterm elections. Just want Fed meeting next Wednesday. Fed meeting next Wednesday. I think it's highly anticipated that they're going to hike by 75 bips or 0.75%. I think if the market's going to allow them, do it. Get more ability to yeah. control monetary policy in the future. Get it over with. But as we head into uh, October, that is the beginning of Q4. And again, just a reminder for listeners, that tends to be a very strong quarter for stocks, especially in midterm years. So um, back next week. All right. Well, we'll have Taylor on. Thank you, Mark. So listeners and viewers, it's uh, time for our financial planning topic of the week. Uh, we have our fan favorite back, uh, Taylor Ledbetter. Uh, she handles financial planning uh, for our practice here in Dayton. Welcome, Taylor. Thanks. Good to be back. So Taylor, what do you have uh, teed up this week uh, for our viewers and listeners? So today I'm going to be talking about the different types of trusts there are because okay. there's so many. There I is a lot. I couldn't even include them all in my notes because it would have just been way too long. <laughs> this will be fun. Okay. Mm -hmm. um, so first, just a trust. It's a legal arrangement between two parties, trustee and a trustor. 
The trustor is the person who establishes the trust and the trustee is the person responsible for managing those assets. Mm -hmm. Um, So typically people will set up a trust just to ensure that their assets are managed for the benefit of their heirs um, or just to minimize tax and estate costs. So first, this is, I think, the most common type of trust is a revocable trust. Mm -hmm. So this just allows you to maintain control of your assets during your lifetime, and you can make changes or dissolve the revocable trust if you want to. Um, I think the main reason people would use this type of trust would just be because they want to maintain control. So maybe they want to control the investments or just how it works in general. So as long as you're uh, living, you can take money in and out of that trust, assets in and out, as long as you're alive. Yep, you can do whatever you want. Yep. Um, Unlike the irrevocable trust, once you transfer assets into it, you can't undo that action. Yes. So it's just a little less flexible. Yes. Um, The main reason that somebody would use an irrevocable trust would be it protects assets from the claims of creditors, um, beneficiaries, um, or Medicaid eligibility. Yes. Whereas with a revocable trust, those assets are subject to creditors. Because you can Um, still control them. Correct. Where with an irrevocable trust, you can't. So those are kind of the differences between the two. Yep. Um, Next, we have a marital trust, also known as an A trust. So this is established by one spouse for the benefit of the other. And when the first spouse passes away, assets and the trust, along with any other income generated, are passed on to the surviving spouse. So typically a marital trust is used if you want to allow the surviving spouse to avoid paying estate taxes on those assets during their lifetime. However, the surviving spouse's heirs would be responsible for paying the estate taxes. Um, So basically, the purpose is just to allow those assets to pass on tax-free to the surviving spouse. Got it. Now, there's also a bypass trust, also called a B-trust or a credit shelter trust. And this is an irrevocable trust that transfers assets directly from one spouse to another at the first spouse's death. Mm -hmm. And the surviving spouse doesn't hold the assets directly. A trustee manages them instead. Mm -hmm. So the reasons that you would use a bypass trust, it's mainly for wealthier individuals um, because if you exceed your lifetime exemption amount, you can use the marital deduction to lower estate taxes. Yep. Um, I would say the main difference between the marital and the bypass trust um, is that the bypass trust, um, the heirs would owe estate taxes on that. Yeah, and I saw these bypass trusts very, very common and popular when I started in the industry in 99, Taylor, because the federal um, uh, exemption level for estate taxes was so low Mm -hmm. that I, I saw these all the time. Mm-hmm. And so what would happen is, is upon passing a spouse, number one, some of these assets would be in this bypass trust where the surviving spouse would get some income, but would not be able to touch the principal. Mm-hmm. And yep, exactly. I saw that a lot. And mm-hmm. I think that if we have, you know, the federal estate tax exemption come down, which I would argue is likely, mm-hmm. 
I think you're going to see a lot more of these. Because mm-hmm. it's pretty high right now. It's high. Mm-hmm. It's what, it's 11 million-ish? It's around 11 million. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I, and that's high. And again, you know, they bring that sucker down to sub five or sub five. Mm-hmm. And my guess is it gets around 5 million. You're going to see a lot more of these. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because right now I don't think there's a major need for, for them most people. at the moment. Yes. So a couple other types of trust are charitable trusts. Yes. Um, there's a charitable lead trust, which allows you to earmark certain assets for a specific charity while the rest of your assets go to your beneficiaries when you pass away. Yes. So that's where, and correct me if I'm wrong, that's where the charity gets benefit while you're alive. But then once you die, whatever's left in there goes to your kids. Mm-hmm. Yep. So there's also a charitable remainder trust, which yes. might be what you're referring to. Got it. Because um, you receive income from the assets for a period of time during yes. your life. Um, then any remaining assets or income then that goes, goes to the, the charity. charity. That's mm-hmm. the CRT. Got so it. yeah, they're very similar, but all these trusts have minor differences. Yes. Mm-hmm. So generally you would just use a charitable trust to get the tax benefits. Um, and typically you want to donate or put into the trust highly appreciated property just to avoid paying high capital gains taxes. And that's the kicker right there, Taylor, is if you want to benefit a charity and, and, and you want to use those highly appreciated assets, you don't want to put cash in there. Cash mm-hmm. you've already sacrificed the taxation on, right? Exactly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, the next type of trust is a special needs trust. And this can help financially provide for a special needs dependent, so child, sibling, parent. Um, And it does this without compromising their ability to receive government benefits for their disability. Correct. So the money in the trust allows them to pay for medical care or day-to-day needs while also allowing them to remain eligible for their government benefits. We have one of these in place for my wife's sister right now. For her down the road and so mm-hmm. it, it provides some supplemental things that uh your government's uh assistance won't provide her mm-hmm. um and uh, they're very useful mm-hmm. yeah, yeah no i i really like them yeah um next is a spendthrift trust and this type of trust is to give you peace of mind if you're concerned about your heirs spending away your inheritance So you can specify when and how trust assets can be accessed by the trust beneficiaries. And just the purpose is to prevent misuse. Yes. So you may restrict beneficiaries to only benefiting from the income or only benefiting from the interest that's earned by the assets, um, but not the principal amount. So you can really kind of structure it however you see fit. And I see those still very popular these days. Mm-hmm. Very popular. Um, the last type of trust I have on here would be a Totten Trust, also known as a payable on death account. So you just put money in your bank account, and when you pass away, the money you've set aside goes directly to your beneficiary. So also known as a payable on death or POD. Got it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And like I said, there's a lot more trusts out there. Oh, there's but so many. I don't want to fit them all in one episode. I mean, so. we, Jenna would be recording for several hours. I mean, yeah. I mean, you got things like uh, I know eyelets are very popular, mm-hmm. which is a life insurance type of trust, and that's typically used for um, estate planning purposes. Obviously, to pay mm-hmm. those estate tax bills for people above those thresholds. 
And I think obviously if that threshold comes in, you're going to see a lot more of those again. Mm -hmm. You know, there's just a lot of different strategies. And this is why, you know, it's important that you sit down uh, with your uh, wealth advisor, your financial planner, and really run some scenarios. Something happens to you. And if you're married, something happens to you and your spouse, run the fire drill and really figure out how are assets going to be distributed? What is the potential ramifications from an estate tax side of the equation, mm -hmm. et cetera? Um, anything you want to add to that? Yeah, I mean, I mean, all the trusts I talked about today, you know, have estate consequences or advantages. Mm -hmm. But I try to just generalize everything, not get too into the weeds with everything. Yes. Um, but I could spend, I mean, another podcast talking about just one trust and the, the specifics and the details, and that could take up the whole segment. Absolutely. <laughs> and I think maybe another one for you down the road doesn't have to be in the near future. I think people would benefit by some explanations of uh, different types of powers of attorney, mm -hmm. you know, healthcare, durable, which is financial, etc. You know, those are different ones that a lot of people aren't educated on, I think, either. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that'd be a great topic. Be a good as well. topic, too. Mm -hmm. Anything else you want to add to this? Um, no, not today. Thank you, Taylor. I think that you always come up with great content and we always get great feedback. So thank you for your time and effort in putting into this. So uh, viewers and listeners, we'll be back uh, next week with another episode. Next week's episode will be number 168. Can you believe we're up to 168, Taylor? It's crazy. So um, uh, Jenna knows very well editing and producing, and she knows exactly what podcast we're on. But uh, viewers and listeners, we'll be back next week, episode 168. Thank you for listening and have a great rest of your week. Thank you for listening to the Independent Advisors Podcast. If you're interested in hearing more, hit the subscribe button so you can be notified every time a new episode gets released. Feel free to share with friends, family, and follow us on Twitter at Jessup Wealth, Facebook, and LinkedIn. Mark and Matt will continue to share beneficial information on these social media sites. Also, check out the podcast tab on their website. That's www.jessupwealthmanagement.com. There you'll find links to every episode of the Independent Advisors. Have questions or topics you want to discuss on the show? Message us on Twitter, LinkedIn, or send an email with the words questions and topics in the subject line to inquiries at jessupwealthmanagement.com. We'll talk about it right here on the podcast. Certain sections of this commentary may contain forward-looking statements based on reasonable expectations, estimates, projections, and assumptions. Forward-looking statements are not guarantees of future performance and involve certain risks and uncertainties, which are difficult to predict. All indices are unmanaged and are not available for direct investment by the public. Past performance is not indicative of future results. This podcast is provided for general informational purposes only and does not constitute either tax, legal, or financial advice. Although we do go to great lengths to make sure our information is accurate and useful, we recommend you consult a tax preparer, professional tax advisor, financial advisor, or lawyer regarding your specific circumstances. Investing involves risk, including the loss of principal. No strategy can guarantee any objective or goal will be achieved. Advisory services offered through Commonwealth Financial Network, a registered investment advisor.